Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast is a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Concerning Him seeks to enrich Christians around the globe by educating and equipping them through various media. For more information about Emmaus, please visit Emmaus.edu. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast. Today we are joined by the voice of our introduction, <laughs> Joel Hernandez. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. It's a, it's a real privilege to be here. Appreciate it. Well, we're we're very thankful to have you. Joel is the program director of the Interco- Intercultural Studies Program here at Emmaus. I say that, but that's only true for just a few more months as you uh, are moving south. Is that correct? That That is true, sadly. <laughs> We've been here for 15 years, uh, come this May, and uh, yeah, for for reasons that have to do with family and and transition, we are we're heading south. All right. Well, in the meantime, we're happy to have you here. I'm sure you'll be back on campus many other times. <laughs> yes, I hope so. Too. So maybe we'll get you on again. Um, to get started, I, I just want to, if you could just tell our listeners kind of who you are, your background, how you got to where you are now in life. Sure, thank you. Um, And it's impossible to tell our family story without prominently uh, telling the story of Emmaus because our our stories are interwoven and really come from Emmaus Bible School, what it was back then. Um, My parents both had attended Emmaus Bible School in the 50s, and so when it was my turn um, to get some uh, formal Bible uh, training, I was thinking about the options, and they suggested Emmaus, and, and uh, of course, it was high on, on the radar. It was, it was Bible school at that time. It was in the Chicago area, and uh, so, so, yeah, I thought I was coming for one year back in the uh, early 80s, and then I would go back to Mexico. My parents are missionaries, uh, so I'm an MK from Mexico, a missionary kid. And um, and I was going to come for one year, and then one year turned into two and three. And then <laughs> right about that time, Emmaus opened its degree program, its Bible degree. And so I came back for a fourth year. And uh, so lot, lots of lots of history here with, with Emmaus. I, I should also add that that I met my wife here, as okay. as many of our listeners perhaps <laughs> can understand that reality, and you know, even our current students uh, know that uh, sometimes it may as Bible school or Bible college is 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 talked about uh, MA as bridal uh, <laughs> college, and and half facetiously, I think, but uh, yeah, it was it was in a course that we had. We had a course on missions that back then our professor was Ken Fleming, uh, a missionary who'd served in Africa, in in uh, South Africa for 25 years, church planter, just a tremendous, uh, a tremendous motivator, a tremendous missionary statement who, statement who, um, who uh, encouraged us in the classroom and just really stimulated our thinking and. And so got us all on fire for missions, and that sort of became our trajectory. Mm. Uh, my wife and I are really married, knowing that someday we would serve as missionaries. 
And so when we left Emmaus, uh, both of us got some sort of practical training. I got uh, training in carpentry here locally at the uh, community college. And my wife uh, went back to the Carolinas and got uh, nurses training and and uh, all with the thought of eventually ending up in the mission field. We um, we served some time in, in uh, California. We moved to California for a few years and then to Texas. And so... Um, in both places we did ministry and, and, um, in Texas, we, I also attended uh, Dallas seminary. So all of that was part of the formation of what God was doing to prepare us for what we thought then would be a lifetime in, in church planting and missions, something like that. Um, and, and, and what what was the result? What did you end up doing? Well, <laughs> well, you just introduced me as the program director of missions here of intercultural studies at Emmaus, so that's also part of our story. But uh, in in 1999, we went off. Uh, we marched into the sunset, you know, with uh, triumphantly going off to the mission field, which we thought was the final destination for our career. Uh, went off to Mexico and and began the ministry of church planning, which we tremendously enjoyed. Uh, my wife learned the, the language and the culture of Mexico, and, and we were super busy in central Mexico when suddenly um, Emea sent an invitation to join the faculty and teach missions. Ken Fleming at that time was uh, stepping down, and uh, and so we. it took us a while. It mm-hmm. took us a while. It wasn't immediate, but... God eventually uh, worked in our lives to come around and say, yes, Lord, whatever, whatever you want. We did not expect uh, coming back to Emmaus where it all began, full circle, but uh, here, here we, we were. In uh, 2007, we joined the faculty and began teaching. When, when you were in Mexico with your wife, is that similar to the area that you grew up in? Or a different different part of Mexico. Well, culturally, culturally, somewhat similar. Um, uh, it was about nine hours away, uh, so a good a good day's travel <clears throat> away from from the town where I was born and where I where I was raised. Um, same same kind of Spanish, uh, a unique history, and and uh, perhaps a bit more militancy in terms of the religious fervor that was a part of this new context. And so the gospel had been resisted a lot in this uh, central region. Um, and so that, that's what really appealed to us, is taking the gospel to, to places where it was not welcome or where it was not known. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's great to get that background, a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Um, <laughs> uh, today, I, I asked you to come on because... I wanted to talk about uh, the content that you wrote in an article, I think it was last November, for uh, CMML, CMML's magazine. That's Christian Missions in Many Lands. Um, you wrote an article about brethren missions in the 20th century. Is, is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, and so I, I wanted to talk to you some about that because I, I found it really interesting. A number of other people that read it um, said, oh, you should, talk, you should talk to Joel in the podcast. They'd like to hear more because um, uh, they, they thought the article was was fascinating. Uh, just just to begin, as we get into this conversation, uh, for listeners that might not know, or even for those that do, just to be helpful, we're talking about brethren missions in the 20th century, and and how 
Could you give a, a quick definition of that word brethren? What are we talking about when we say that? So, of course, lots of, um, lots of groups of Christians around the world uh, use the word brethren. I mean, it's a term that appears in the Bible, but it means uh, uh, something unique to different groups. And, and for the movement that we are a part of, um, the, the word brethren really comes from the, the <clears throat> verses in Matthew where, uh, in the Gospels, where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, don't, don't go around hoping that people will call you teacher um, because you only have one teacher and all of you are brethren. And so really flatlining the society and saying, um, don't try to be something big, something important. Uh, all of you are equal before me and I am the Lord. And so taking from that cue, the, the, the brethren, this group that really emerged in the um, early 1800s, uh, resisted any title for themselves, like any denominational title they would reject. And of course, there's a number of, of terms that people have used about them, uh, which they reject, <laughs> of course. But the, the most prominent one is Plymouth Brethren, because in their beginnings, one of the bigger uh, churches that were established by them was in Plymouth, England. And so, yeah, um, the, this was a movement of, of people who uh, believe strongly in the unity of the body of Christ, and therefore, um, and, it, and it comprised people from different groups. I mean, early on, it was like Presbyterians and lots of Anglicans. I mean, we're talking about the UK here, <laughs> uh, Anglicans and Quakers and, um, and, and others. And it was really a youth movement, young people in their 20s, 30s, who sort of rejected the separatist kind of uh, mentality that divided people and said, hey, if you're this, you can't get along with the people in the other group. And so they said, no, if we all belong to Christ, shouldn't we be one body? Aren't we actually indeed one body? And so they started meeting together and started breaking bread or observing communion. And, and it's sort of emerged from there, a society that rejected these... Um, divisions and insisted in the unity of the of the body of Christ. And so it, it was like, we're not going to have our own denomination. Uh, denominations are probably not a good idea. And, um, and religious castes or segregation internally, like, hey, the clergy versus the laity or the pastor versus the people, that kind of religious segregation, they also rejected yeah or, uh, uh, at least an attempt to apply uh, uh, priesthood of all believers right and 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 the practice of the church is yeah there there are a number of values that they held in common and one of them was that the the priesthood of every believer that every single person could approach God without mediation and uh, and serve God and worship God and pray to God and so they did not need a special class of religious leaders that came along and did that for them. Um, and it really came to head in the area of missions. I mean, since we're talking about yeah. missions here, it, it starts with, with a young man named um, Anthony Norris Groves who wants to be a missionary. He, he has this burden to be a missionary. And, um, and the missionary societies of the day reject them. And they reject them because he's not 
ordained. He's mm. not an ordained minister. And the thinking of that day is that only ordained ministers could be missionaries. Why? Because eventually those missionaries would plant a church and would have to distribute communion. And communion in that day was regarded as the special privilege of the ruling religious class. And so if you're ordained, you can distribute the bread and the cup. If you're not ordained, you can't do that. Mm. And so the brethren rejected this and said, no, wait, but all of us have been ordained <laughs> by God, and we don't need to behold to uh, human ordination. And so, therefore, he stepped out without an ordination and just went on his own, hmm. went off to um, uh, Baghdad, was a missionary there, and uh, really a, a huge, significant moment, really, in the history of missions. And talking about you know, brethren missions in the 1900s were not necessarily pretending that by any means these are the only missions happening in the in the 1900s in the 20th century but um that's specifically what we're talking about today and i'm curious how and you're mentioning this a little bit but what how does the uniqueness of the brethren model lend itself to missions what makes brethren missions different or unique if that makes sense yeah and and you're absolutely right the brethren were not the only missionaries I mean, starting from the apostles who received the Great Commission, and for centuries after that, missions really is a long, long history of, of people, uh, not just men, but women also, uh, who uh, take the Word of God to, to places where it's not known and, and do incredible things. I mean, they reduce languages uh, into written form so that they can translate the scriptures and then teach people how to read their own language and, uh, and just... So many things, I, I could mention like uh, dozens of things that missionaries did. And it's really toward the uh, most recent part of the history of missions, what we call the modern missionary era, that, uh, which, which was kicked off by, by um, William Carey in 1792. And, and it's in this last part that really missions has exploded throughout the scene, throughout the globe, and... Um, a great interest in missions, missionaries going out from all parts of the globe uh, and reaching just about every corner of the world, every people group. And among them is this little group called the, that, that calls themselves the Brethren. And so, and, and it starts with Anthony Norris Groves, the, the story we just told you, um, I just referred to, he wrote a little booklet called Christian Devotedness. And uh, it's one of those things that, people don't really uh, know, haven't heard much of. But this little booklet set off a new direction for missions. And, and in the book, he was basically expounding the words of Christ who said, don't lay up treasures for yourself here on earth, but lay them, uh, you know, store your treasures in heaven. And, and he was asking the question, do you suppose Jesus meant it uh, literally or figuratively? <laughs> and of course, everyone in his day would have said, ah, oh, of course, it's figurative. It's okay to, you know, store money and store riches. And, and he's like, no, Let, let's suppose for a second that Jesus actually meant what he said. And if he meant what he said, then we shouldn't be like storing riches. We should be trusting in God for our provision. And, and that concept in this little booklet set off a, a whole new thinking about about missionary funding 
which we now know as faith missions, faith missions. And, and one of the biggest proponents of the day, one of the ones who illustrated that concept the best was Hudson Taylor, mm. uh, who founded China Inland Mission and recruited hundreds and hundreds of, of missionaries to go into the interior of China. And, and he and Hudson Taylor got this idea about faith missions from uh, another very important uh, figure in, in the history of mission, it's George Mueller, mm-hmm. the famous uh, man of faith who opened orphanages. And George Mueller got the idea from Anthony Norris Groves in this little <laughs> booklet. So this set off a little chain of events, and it's come even to our day. Most mission groups out there, evangelical missionaries and mission groups would say, we believe in faith missions. And it all starts with this little idea that this uh, this man Anthony Norsgrove uh, had. And and what what that's that's fascinating. And so uh, George Mueller is his brother, and 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 Hudson Taylor is he is he was connected with the brother, and is that correct? It's it's not as it's not as firm as as Mueller was. Is that correct? It's, that's true. George Mueller would would uh, identify himself with the brethren. He, he was a Prussian believer who came to the UK as a missionary. So he's actually a missionary in the UK, reaching people and starting his orphanages. But uh, Hudson Taylor had had only attended uh, a brethren kind of church during his years of education before he went mm-hmm. off to the field. And so he was baptized in one of these, uh, they call them assemblies, like the gatherings of brethren. And, um, and so that's where he became familiar with these principles. But he himself was not necessarily a lifelong, yeah. you know, brethren as we'd know it. And you, you just hit on this some, but what does is, what is the, the brethren missionary model look like? You were talking about the financial aspect of it, um, but what are other aspects of the brethren missionary model? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. In the article, I made reference to several um, several characteristics. Mm-hmm. I mean, all, uh, missionaries today from from gospel believing churches all have lots in common. The brethren sort of sort of have their own identifying markers, and and I would list a, a number of things. Uh, for example, gospel priority, the gospel priority, the priority of preaching the gospel. Uh, early on, the brethren adopted a an eschatology that was premillennial and dispensational, and regardless of of what you and I might think or our listeners might think, it really characterized um, it, it really characterized the brethren, especially in the early days, especially when it comes to the um, the imminence of Christ's return. The thought was Christ could return at any moment, and so. What are we going to do about the needs in the world? What are we going to th- do about all the people who have never heard the gospel? Well, if, if Christ is coming today, then we need to get the word out. Yeah. And so that gospel-driven priority was was high in the mind of the brethren. That, that's one characteristic. Another, which we already mentioned, would be the, the priesthood of all believers and the fact that you've got these masses of people who don't have to have a seminary education in order to be ordained, in order to be sent, they can go now. They're ready to go now. Mm. And so as long as they have some sort of uh, church backing them and 
and commissioning them to the field, then then they're good to go. So that's that's the other. The the third characteristic I would mention was uh, is uh, is a structural sort of independence. Uh, the brethren are not big on on institutionalizing themselves, and so on the mission field, they're not this big organization that has treasure and you know president and regional directors and meetings and you know responsibilities. It's not it's not institutionalized, and so you got these missionaries that are scattered around the globe that that are freed from that institutional responsibility to do the work. And, and it's very freeing. Now, the, the, it, the, the, the pros come with, with um, the assets come with liabilities, I should say. And so uh, some of the benefits of that freedom are you can, you can redirect wherever the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to do this now. I want you to change the focus of your ministry. And, and the challenges of that model is that sometimes we lack in, in mentoring of new missionaries or helping mm-hmm. new transition, new missionaries transition to the field or uh, helping uh, missionaries who are struggling or find themselves in some challenges. We're, we're improving at that, but that historically has been one of the deficiencies of the model. And then, and then I, finally, I would um, also add there is a very strong emphasis on a dependence on, on the Lord. And that that um, plays out in the area of finances. And so we uh, brethren missionaries have not typically gone around asking for money uh, or done deputation work, as it's known in the field of, of missions. Um, they just they just make their needs known to the Lord and um, and then the Lord supplies. And so an example of this would be, you know, when, when a missionary first is, is commissioned to the field, they don't take a year or two to raise funds or get promises, uh, pledges of a certain amount. They just, they're free to go. Mm. And, uh, and the interesting thing, which my wife and I were able to, to prove for ourselves and to the world, is that God supplies uh, our needs. Mm. Yeah. We, uh, we had Andrew Hawkinson from Kansas Bible Camp on the podcast in uh, late fall, yeah. and he was talking some about that for himself and how the Lord, the Lord supplies, it and he's just constantly baffled by it. And, and uh, it's, it's amazing to hear it was to hear that in action was was really cool. Yeah, and, and all missionaries step out in faith. I mean, they have to step out out of their culture and out of their language into like a great abyss of the unknown. Like, <laughs> what do I do now and how do I do it? But to step out financially, I mean, that's a huge ordeal. <laughs> and and to see God step in and, and provide mm-hmm. and direct and just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing and a very freeing thing, I, I think, because brother missionaries traditionally have not had to go back home to raise more money. They just like keep on working because mm-hmm. God continues to provide. You mentioned um, in your your characteristics there that one of them uh, was that the the, the brethren model kind of results in in um, people feeling free just to go out and and preach to all believers. Right? They you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to be ordained. Um, and then you but you also said one of the areas that we've lacked is on that mentoring aspect. And obviously you've been 
teaching missions for 15 years, so you see some importance in the formal education. How how does somebody, and we didn't really, this isn't one of our questions we talked about, but, but how does somebody make that decision, if that makes sense? Like, I want to be a missionary. I'm, I'm 18 or 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever it is, and I, w- I want to go be a missionary. I want to go serve here. Do I go to a place like Emmaus? Or, you, or you, you know, you did more education at Dallas, something like that. Do I get the training? Do I get the degree? Or do I just go? Yeah. Wow. It's a dangerous thing to go off script here. <laughs> uh, but here we go. <laughs> um, well, of course, I believe wholeheartedly in training. Uh, you're going to devote years of your life to serve the Lord in a very unique environment, a challenging environment. And... And uh, the wise thing to do would be invest some time in getting training. And of course, the more um, specific the kind of work you're doing, the more challenging, the more inherently complex thing you're you're going to do, the more training you need. So if you're going to be a Bible translator, uh, well, it would be helpful. It would be really helpful if you had some courses on linguistics and perhaps uh, sprinkled in Greek and Hebrew and uh, original languages so you can have a better handle of the word. If you're going to a tribal area, it'd be great to understand uh, tribal religions and animism and how different societies work. And um, yeah, yeah, there's just so many contexts in which the context sort of drives the kind of mm. training, the amount of training you, ha- you need. Uh, every young person who wants to be a missionary should know their Bible. That's mm-hmm. number one, mm-hmm. because that's going to be the subject uh, that that you're really there to impart. You're, you're really there to transform society through the power of God's word. And and you're an agent, but you, you must know the book um, when, when you need to know the book in order to evangelize, in order to make disciples, in order to plant churches. Everything is, is written in the book. And so... You need to go back again and again and be a student of, of the Bible. And whether you get the, the education on your own, like uh, like some believers have said, you know, I got my education on my knees. Praise God. Mm. Uh, where you get it is, is less important as uh, the fact that you should get education. And so know your Bible would be number one. You also need to know about culture. And so th- this is one of the big things that is emerging in our century and that is um, cultures are not these like simple things that are unimportant that we should just disregard. They're, they're really critical to the process of, um, of understanding the word of God and living it out. Because the reality is we, we live out what we know from the word of God in culture. And so as you're taking the word of God somewhere else to another culture you're actually if you're not aware taking the word of god as you understand it in your own cultural sort of framework and trying to explain it to someone someone else and and inevitably unless we're aware of this we are passing we're handing off the word of god along with a framework a cultural framework a world view if you will an understanding of how the world works works that is that was forged in our own Mm. Uh, you know, native culture. And and so to, to be able to understand that and, and then work through that and then plant the gospel in a way that can indigenously 
take root and express itself perhaps a little bit differently than I practiced it back at home um, is, a, is a good thing. And so, but that, that process of understanding culture is important also to the training training process. Hence the name intercultural studies. Yes. yes. <laughs> that, that's really what intercultural studies at Emmaus is all about is, is equipping students with the knowledge, the skills, cultural skills to take the gospel across mm -hmm. cultures. Getting back to our questions. Thank you. That was, that was very, I think it's really helpful. That's, that's a, a, a tough, I think specifically for people that grow up in the brother and uh, the brother and model of, of church. It's a tough question to ask is, seminary isn't necessarily being pushed for everybody that wants to go into ministry. But then when, when, do, when do you go, when do you go get the trading and when don't? And I, I think that was a really helpful know know the book. Number one, that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> um getting back to what we were talking about here, how, how would you define the character of, of brethren missions in the 20th century? As, as we're talking about the 20th century, what, I know we just listed a bunch of character traits. Is, is there anything kind of specific to the 20th century and, and why, you know, I, you mentioned in the beginning of your article, you said God was supposed to be dead, right? Darwinism <laughs> and all these things, and yet missions boomed in a lot of ways. And um, yeah. yeah, so the, the 20th century is this century of tremendous scientific innovation and ideologies that are rising and communism that is sort of taking the world by storm and you think oh no this is the end this is mm. the scientific era it's the end of of religion and there's all sorts of people saying god is dead and this is yeah this is uh, the final nail in the co in the coffin and yet remarkably uh instead of a uh recession or a receding line of of christianity of the gospel what you see is an incredible explosion and growth that we could have never imagined. Africa went from from having no Christians to now sending Christians and being one of the places that is uh, where Christianity is growing the fastest. And uh, so, like, how did that happen in the 20th century that saw world wars that just decimated the the world population and that had many people lose really their their faith in, in the goodness of God or the existence of God. And, and, and I attribute it to the power of God and to salvation. Of course, we know that from Romans 1. But uh, to, the, to the work of men and women who have gone out throughout the world as missionaries to, to preach the gospel, to uh, evangelize, to help, to lift up the marginalized people, to uh, feed the hungry, to, to clothe the naked, to home the 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 orphans and and help the widows and just on and on just these ministries that multiply all over the world uh through these unassuming people who we call missionaries who are somewhat resented by society because they um you know they go into cultures that are not their own and preach a foreign message and and things like that and and so god used these people to do amazing things. And I'm talking about missionaries uh, all over the world from very many groups and, and denominations. The brethren, you're asking me, what are the characteristics of, of yeah. brethren missions? And I would say that in the 19th century, mission brethren missionaries were um, visionary. They're visionary. They're people who had often seen the world after the two world wars Many of the men had been abroad and seen life and 
perhaps tasted a little bit about language and culture and said, hey, you know what, I could move here and I love these people and uh, I really connect with them. And so uh, a whole explosion of, of missionaries, um, new missionaries happens immediately after the World Wars. And, and oftentimes these are pioneers. People, and a pioneer is a special class of missionary. It's, it's the uh, tip of the, of the um, uh, how should I say, of the, of the effort that that opens new ground and and that missionary uh the the pioneer has to be resilient and has to be uh, endure lots of hardship and he's the first one to arrive and so he's opening the 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 way and um a lot of what comes after that person is uh is owed to to the toil the effort the sacrifice of that pioneer um so so the pioneers is a, oftentimes a visionary. Um, in, in terms of brethren missionaries, there was uh, often an unconcern or unconstrained sort of freedom that they had to just go and do whatever. Mm. Um, so responsiveness is another quality. They go, they see the needs, like, wow, these people need education they're asking for education let's start a school mm. and so they don't have to like stop and convince headquarters uh of things they just they just are responsive and are able to uh do things quickly um they they are innovators as well and so we have a whole host of of uh, people who because of that responsiveness because of that unconstrained freedom end up imagining things that um otherwise would have probably not been been um, thought of like like for example I, I don't know if I can give you an example yeah. but um, one of these people is is Ed Harlow he's a missionary mm. in Belgian Congo and um, Belgian Congo at the time is is a it's a hard place but a number of missionaries have arrived there and they're preaching they're having great success so much success that this missionary is like man wouldn't it be great if we had like not just one or two more helpers, but like armies, pardon the analogy, but lots and lots of people <laughs> that um, young people who knew the Bible and who come and, and come here and come to other places in the world. And, and so he is sitting there in the mission field. He says, I know I'm going to go back to North America and we're going to start a Bible school. <laughs> and, and that's the birth of Emmaus Bible School, Ed Harlow and a few others. Uh, said we're going to prepare young people for missionary service, people with a, with a Bible, with knowledge of of what the New Testament teaches, mm. and um, and it is incredible innovation. Um, and and after that, people start asking like, "Hey, wait a second, you know, I, I I'm in the military and I can't go to that Bible school, but how can I benefit from from the courses?" And so the teachers at Emmaus Bible School start writing what they called correspondence courses, like a course that you send in the mail that gets studied and answered and then sent back through the mail to be graded and then uh, back for, uh, it's sent back to the person with, with feedback on, on their uh, answers. And so the Emmaus correspondence ministry has a beginning. And then a missionary in the Philippines uh, grabs hold of that and says, you know what, this is, these are great courses. I'm in a, I'm going to uh, read them on the air, and then I'm going to invite people on the radio broadcast that they had every week uh, to, to um, order a course. 
And so the uh, radio, uh, it was called the Bible, I'm looking for the name here, Bible, uh, the radio school of the air, I believe somebody's going to correct me, but <laughs> it was a ministry that really ended up in thousands of people um, responding and probably tens of thousands responding with um, requests for getting to know the Bible. And this is in the Philippines and Southeast Asia, uh, a ministry that grew very, very wide. And, and it's this responsiveness, this lack of constraints uh, from an institutional body saying, no, you can't do that. Uh, that's not part of our vision. It's like a very responsive, I'm listening to the Holy Spirit, and I see this need, and boom, I'm going to respond. So that, that would be characteristic, one mm. of the big characteristics of Brethren Missions. You mentioned being able to be responsive. I, I, I a few months ago when Danny Johnson from Burundi, is that correct, was, was in town, I got the chance to have lunch with him. And uh, and listening to some of the stories of they just said, yeah, these people needed this. We did this. They we needed a deaf school, so we started a deaf school. We these people needed a, a building. This church needed a building, so we just built. And they're just they just do it. They they see a need and they're able to just go ahead and do it. And there's no, you know, like you said, call back to headquarters, try to get approval, do the convincing, raise the specific funds. He just says, if this is what's needed, and this is how we can get the gospel to people. That's what we're going to do, and we're just going to do it right. So he's listing through all the di different things he's doing simultaneously because of that. And he's doing probably way too many things, but he's got all these different ministries and different things going on because he can he can be responsive. It was really fun. Yeah, that's it's it's crazy. But when you hear of all the things that missionaries do, your, your head gets to spinning like, how does someone <laughs> do that? How does someone become like a Danny Johnson? And it's just one step at a time. Mm -hmm. You see needs and you respond to them. And, and, and hopefully you're a good delegator and you pass it on to people who can give it a consistency and take mm -hmm. it and run with it. And so some of the best missionaries have, have done that out of love for the people that they've been sent to, to uh, minister to, out of love and a real sense of understanding of their needs and, and what they wish to accomplish. The missionary, the the foreigner, the outsider comes, partners with them, and helps them, um, you know, reach goals mm -hmm. and and serve needs and and love people. Well, as we wrap up here, I want to give you a chance just to talk through a few more examples, different people, different brother and missionaries in the 1900s who made a difference. Um, who who who? Obviously, it is all for the Lord. It's all through the Lord. It's all because of the Lord. We're not trying to. Uh, turn these people into heroes, but you can, you, you know, obviously we, we talked about George Mueller and Hudson Taylor stories that many people outside the brethren know, and you read those stories and you're encouraged and you say, look, this is an example of somebody serving the Lord. And I think there's many of other, others of those, especially in, in the 1900s and be curious to hear some of the examples. Yeah. And, and my examples are somewhat limit, limited to, to foreign missionaries, the like the North American missionary that goes abroad, because that's where I've spent my time studying in the last uh, 15 or so years. But, uh, you know, an interesting, an interesting study is two brothers, uh, two brothers who become missionaries from from the um, Portland area, who uh, w one of them goes off to Ecuador and becomes a sensational story, so well known, the whole world over has heard of him. Mm. And 
And his brother also becomes a missionary a few years later and goes in, in to Peru and is virtually unknown. <laughs> and and the interesting things uh, thing about this, these brothers is they, they both love Jesus. They both are very intelligent, both super committed. One dies a martyr's death early on, uh, very young. He's cut off. And, and the other one lives and ministers for 60-some years, um, unassuming, quiet, but tremendous fruit. And so the, the first one is Jim Elliott, of course, the story of Jim and the five, um, one of the five Ecuador martyrs who in 1955, I believe it was, uh, were landing on a little strip of, of land there by the Curarai River in, in Ecuador and hoping to make contact with a very uh, dangerous tribe, the Warani tribe. And uh, after establishing contact and exchanging gifts and feeling like, you know, I think this is a good time and, and praying, lots of prayer went into it. And sort of the whole team, husbands and wives, uh, deciding, okay, we're going to establish contact. And, and as the story goes, uh, the one member that that came out to meet them was a marginalized member of society who was in trouble with the rest of the of the tribe and and spun a lie that eventually ended in the killing of these these five men and and for what to us seems like a tragedy like man how could that happen how could god lead these very very bright men uh, leaders in their own right um just the movers of their era, how, how could God lead them to their death, like to an early death? And it was shocking, and it was all over the news. I mean, uh, some of the great magazines and, and newspapers of the day were covering the story. There were uh, pol uh, politicians who were flying down there to recover bodies and, and uh, interface with governments. And um, so the Jim Elliott story was, was the huge missionary, one of the big stories of, of the 1900s. Um, and, and amazingly, after their death, the wives went back to the tribe and lived among them and continued the work. Wow. And so that's really, that's a tribute of, of the love and commitment that these families had. It wasn't just, it wasn't just for show. It was real. The, the commitment, the love, the, the sense of call and of purpose uh, from God was, was a real thing. Um, and so Jim is cut off early, but his brother, Bert, Bert Elliott, uh, who's not well known, uh, went off to Peru and, and, uh, quietly and unassumingly preached the gospel everywhere. Mm. He traveled, uh, hundreds of thousands of miles, taking the gospel to the mountains, down to the coastline, um, down into the jungle area and and as a result he and his wife uh, Colleen um, shared the gospel with thousands and thousands of people planted about 150 churches um, started a number of organizations to help the poor and uh, it's just incredible incredible but all of that was just very very quiet and unassuming and uh, and if you asked him he, they've both both passed away of course Bert and Colleen but if you ask them like how did you do all this um, one of his answers would be, you know, I have a profound faith in the power of the word of God. Mm. 
Um, and so here's, here's a guy who just believed the word of God. He believed God meant what he said, and he trusted in him. And that faith was just so characteristic of, of uh, the missionary brethren in, in the 1900s. And I hope it continues to characterize <laughs> it for, forever. Um, recently, a book uh, uh, detailing Bert Elliott's life uh, came out and um, highly recommended, although I don't have the details about that. Perhaps <laughs> we can add them to the podcast. Okay. Later. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's fascinating. You know, you, you said a well-known and a non-well-known brother and, and I, uh, talked about Ecuador and I actually thought you were going to talk about Pete and Ken. Just <laughs> <laughs> Pete Fleming, Ken Fleming. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been, been a blast yeah my pleasure thanks for the invitation and greetings to all thank you thank you for listening to concerning him an Emmaus podcast ministries like concerning him are possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world for more information about partnering with us please visit emmaus.edu slash partner <laughs>